What does utopia look like to you? Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Journalist Lisa Napoli may have found Shangri-La while working in a remote kingdom in the Himalayas. It's really like a moment frozen in time in much of Bhutan because it doesn't have the menacing forces of the outside world, electricity, roads. On the other hand, Sweden aims for a more modern version of the ideal society, where there's still time to enjoy yourself and your family. Walking around in Stockholm, you can see daddies with the strollers, with the babies, and they're sitting in the cafes and drinking latte and having a great time with their friends. A guide from Stockholm explains how modern Sweden works in the hour ahead. And author J. Martin Truce tells us how he found solace on some of the most remote islands of the South Pacific. You know, you have the fruit off the trees, you have the fish in the sea, you have the water that comes from the sky. It's a more primeval life in a way. Come along as we look for paradise in all sorts of places. It's Travel with Rick Steves. What does Sweden have in common with the tiny Himalayan kingdom of Bhutan? Well, both countries are said to be home to some of the happiest people on Earth. When journalist Lisa Napoli went to Bhutan, she was dazzled by that country's beauty and its traditions. She'll join us in just a bit to talk about the effects of globalization on a place where time seems to have stood still. While Swedes are not known to brag, tour guide Asa Danielson will do just that as she explains why Sweden is her version of heaven on earth. Let's open up today's Travel with Rick Steves on the islands of the South Pacific. More than a century ago, Robert Louis Stevenson, author of Treasure Island and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, explored this remote paradise in search of solitude and inspiration. Stevenson's writings about his South Sea adventures inspired author J. Martin Truce to make a similar journey. The result is Truce's latest book, Headhunters on My Doorstep, a true Treasure Island ghost story. He's also written two other South Sea memoirs, The Sex Lives of Cannibals and Getting Stoned with Savages. Martin joins us right now to tell us how he was inspired to find his own sobriety while retracing the final South Seas adventure of Robert Louis Stevenson. Martin, thanks for being with us. Oh, good to be here. So, Martin, you were basically following the route or inspired by the route of, of Robert Louis Stevenson's final voyage to the South Seas. Now, tell us about his final voyage. Where did he go? Well, he started off in San Francisco. When he decided to leave, he stood about five foot ten, weighing all of 95 pounds. And he decided to go to the South Pacific for his health and to write a few articles. The intention was just to go for six months. In the end, he uh, left and he uh, never set foot on a continent again, except for Australia. He sailed to uh, the Marquesas and then down to the Tuamotos, to Tahiti. And then he sailed upwards to Hawaii and caught a gypsy schooner down to Kiribati and finally to Samoa. And this was back in around 1890? That's right. And did he put on some weight? Uh, well, he did. He, <laughs> he he did delight in the uh, the health benefits of a a long sea voyage. He was a sickly man, wasn't he? He was, which makes him sort of an extraordinary traveler. I find that's interesting. Yeah, because I mean, he, he was bold while he was frail. Absolutely, he sort of uh, he he traveled. Uh, I think in spite of his health. Now, what was this like? A four or five year period during in his life, his last five years or something? Approximately, it was the last five years of his life. So now, how did his adventures in the South Pacific inspire you as you wrote your trilogy and most recently, Headhunters on My Doorstep? Well, I'd been sort of coming off of a, a rough time myself. I was reading through the early literature of the South Pacific, reading through De Bougainville and 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 Captain Cook and. I found that much of their writings came across sort of as a technicolor dream. Robert Louis Stevenson, when he started writing about the early literature of the South Pacific, described it as sort of a sugar candy sham epic. And he almost as a taunt said, if you will read my work, you will know more about all the South Pacific than all the volumes combined. So uh, hmm. I, I took him up on his challenge, but I was more inspired by his life, the way he lived, sort of the... Uh, the living in the moment and, and seeing sort of the, the majesty of the world you know, and everything he encountered. So let's talk about that, because a uh, hundred years later, you've been inspired by Robert Louis Stevenson. He had his health problems. Uh, you were struggling with alcohol problems also. Mm -hmm. And uh, you're following his trail around the South Pacific. What did he do that you did that worked into your adventures and your writing? What he did, what you could really tell, is how much he was present in the moment. And that's sort of no small thing. You know, he, um, he had much in his past. And, of course, there was the enormous pressure of being one of the uh, most renowned writers of his time. But what I really took from him is sort of the delight he took in life itself. You can see, if you take a look at the photographs from that era of his, sort of the, 
the twinkle in his eye. Yeah. It's a, it's a wonderful sight to see on such a sort of frail body. I was just in his museum in Edinburgh in Scotland, mm-hmm. and he is a fascinating traveler, and that really contributed to his ability to be a fascinating writer. Talk to me about some specific sort of things that we would enjoy seeing or actually doing. Pig hunting with a spear, uh, chasing <laughs> sharks, climbing coconut trees, dealing with headhunters. What are some of the, the vivid things that could a, a modern-day traveler could incorporate into their experience? Well, one of the, the things that I really enjoyed is traveling to the Marquesas by ship. There is one boat that does take a few passengers that departs from Tahiti, and it takes you to islands that are uh, inaccessible by air, so only by sea. And you go to places like Fatuhiva, which is um, perhaps renowned from uh, uh, Thor Heyerdahl's days. Um, mm. It was an island that he lived on for two years before World War II. And it's one of the most remarkable, most beautiful islands I've ever seen. How so? Just breathtaking. It's sort of a, it's a strange fusion of islands. You have sort of the, the tropical air of it, of course, with the beaches and the palm trees down low. But it's a moody island. It's something that you, you, you don't typically see in those latitudes. And, and the higher you look up, the more almost fierce it looks. And mm. the, the mood of the island seemed to sort of change and shift with the, the change of the light, you know, just with the passage mm. of the sun. I can imagine you could kind of feel the weather, the humidity, the before the storm and this kind of thing. Yeah, you do. You're, you're very much part of the elements there. And then further on towards the Tumotos, Robert Louis Stevenson was really taken by the, uh, the, the beauty of the lagoon in, in Fakarava. It's really sort of where the, the magic of those islands is. What did you do to spice up the... I mean, how did you connect with nature? What did you do that was edgy? Yeah, one of the things that I did, of course, is um, Fakarava is now a UN biosphere reserve. So there's no fishing uh, and the like around the, uh, the reefs which makes it sort of an extraordinary spectacle when you get in the water. I recall when I first arrived on the island and then toward sunset, the, the lagoon was calm, just absolutely still, and it just sort of fused seamlessly into the sky. And then all of a sudden I'd see these ripples, and very soon there were dorsal fins all around me, dozens, dozens of dorsal fins. Now, I grew up in, in the era of Jaws, so mm-hmm. this sort of uh, really gets <laughs> into some sort of primal reptilian core of me but really literally hundreds of sharks. And it's a, it's a breathtaking experience. You're snorkeling with sharks? Yeah, and your, your brain doesn't quite know what to do. It, it's trying to send you both sort of the adrenaline, you know, uh, yeah, panic know and flea impulse. Yeah. Right, and then, but on the other hand, you, you know that you're, you're seeing such a wonder of the world. Ugh. Yeah, it, it was a beautiful moment. And the light refracts through deeper into the surface, and then the way it sort of glistens off the fish or, or the coral and, and the swaying of the current. And then to see, it, it wasn't just the sharks, but these, these enormous emperor fish and, and schools, really, universities of fish swimming all around you. It was a, it was a great experience. And you know, knowing how much of the world's reefs are, are really damaged these days, I, I found it really an extraordinary experience to, uh, to partake of that. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with J. Martin Troost, and he's written a trilogy of books on the South Pacific. His latest travel memoir is Headhunters on My Doorstep, inspired by the adventures of Robert Louis Stevenson 100 years ago in the same part of the world. Martin, I'm fascinated by just trying to get away from it all in the South Pacific and to be inspired not only by indigenous people there today, but also by a great traveler and writer and and lover of life, Robert Louis Stevenson, a century ago. Did you pick up any sort of survival skills, Tom Hanks, castaway kind of stuff uh, in, in your travels that was helpful in, in your writing? You know, I'm, I'm sure it's, you're the same. You know, once, once I get on an airplane and I start to go overseas, I just take up certain different habits, you know, with, uh, with regards to food and, and, and water and, and basics like that. But in the South Pacific, you can still be fairly, you know, careless, I suppose. You know, you have the fruit off the trees, you have the fish in the sea, you have the water that comes from the sky. It's a more primeval life in a way. More primeval. That's a good word. I guess that's what I was imagining, is you can be yeah. primeval today. Mm-hmm. Now, now, you wrote that you felt like you had a kinship with Robert Louis Stevenson, like you were soulmates. Was he primeval? How were you soulmates? I, I think so. It, it, the way he lived his life, he was a born traveler. You know, he said, you know, he, he doesn't travel to go anywhere, but merely to travel. I love that quote, yeah. Yeah, and, and that's sort of the way I've been all my life as well. 
But what I find so curious about uh, Robert Louis Stevenson is at the end, his, his sort of decision to settle in Samoa out of all places. Why do you say out of all places? Well, Samoa really is at the end of the world. And as I said before, Robert Louis Stevenson was perhaps the most famous writer of his time. Yeah. But Robert Louis Stevenson, he was perhaps the only man who, who, who didn't recognize that he was himself famous. Huh. He felt much more comfortable in his bones, sort of being on a, on a ship in the pajamas, you know, striking through the South Seas than he did in a crowd in New York. Obviously, Robert Louis Stevenson's a great traveler and a great observer. Mm-hmm. Can he give us travel tips so that we can travel better today? I think what, what he had is he was perhaps a proponent of the full immersion experience. He was never sort of dabbling on the outside, you know, uh, gawking at the locals. He very much sort of wanted to sort of partake of their life. And he, he had sort of a, an engagement with, with the world around him. I think sometimes when we, we, we travel lazily, we miss out on. So if, if an opportunity presents itself, the answer is yes. Yes. That's one of my themes lately. You know, I'm tired, yes. it's late. Opportunity, yes. Yes, Exactly. You can read Robert Louis Stevenson's books and be inspired that way. What about your travel memoir, Headhunters on My Doorstep? Did you think about that as a guidebook? When you wrote that, did you hope that others might be inspired to say yes and do it with abandon? Well, perhaps. I, I think when I, when I write, I, I tend to sort of uh, almost put up four walls, and, and I sort of write really sort of for my own enjoyment and, uh, and just to hope that others will, uh, will find what they're looking for and find some inspiration in them. But I, I don't consciously seek to uh, do that. Mm-hmm. I'm hopeful that the, the tale alone will uh, will inspire others to um, to take to the road or take to the seas, as it were. Well, let's close with one idea then. Let's say somebody was to read Headhunters on My Doorstep. What's one experience, one little adventure that they could translate into their own travel experience if they were lucky enough to venture through the South Pacific? I think to approach any of those islands by sea. I think that is just the way those islands are to be approached. And that can be done throughout. When we fly in, it's too abrupt, and I don't think we sort of appreciate sort of the reality, the nature of an island, as we do when we slowly approach it by sea. I love it. I'm looking at the cover of your book, and that's exactly what shows up on the cover. Yeah, that's right. You're looking over yeah. the rustic bow pulpit, and here comes a little gaggle of, <laughs> of palm trees, and I just yeah. want to climb that coconut tree and drink some refreshing coconut milk. Right. J. Martin Troost, author of Headhunters on My Doorstep, thanks for uh, connecting us a little bit with Robert Louis Stevenson and and sharing your travel adventures in your latest travel memoir. Happy travels. Thanks so much for uh, inviting me on. You bet. J. Martin Troost's website is spelled J-M-A-A-R-T-E-N-T-R-O-O-S-T dot com. We'll get an insider look at Sweden in just a bit. But next, we head for the Himalayas. Lisa Napoli joins us to talk about Bhutan and what's happening as the once-isolated nation opens up to the modern world. We're at 877-333-RIC. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. The European Union received the 2012 Nobel Peace Prize for promoting peace, human rights, and democracy. Information available at euintheus.org. Hello, my name is Lotte Rinchen from Bhutan, north of India in the Himalayas. I travel with Rick Steves. <laughs> That's good. It's easy to romanticize Bhutan. 
Until recently, this remote Buddhist kingdom on the eastern flank of the Himalayas was cut off from the modern world. It still strictly limits the numbers of foreign tourists who can visit. Some people dub it the last true Shangri-La. But the 21st century is accelerating changes in Bhutan. Bhutan made headlines recently for inventing the concept of gross national happiness as an alternative to measuring gross domestic product. In 2006, Business Week rated it among the top 10 of the world's happiest nations. In 2007, journalist Lisa Napoli was invited to help set up a youth-oriented radio station in Bhutan. She first joined us on the show about a year ago to talk about the changes she observed and chronicled in her book, Radio Shangri-La, what I discovered on my accidental journey to the happiest kingdom on earth. Lisa, good to have you back. Thanks for having me. Boy, Lisa, now you spent uh, six different trips in the last five years to Bhutan. Describe Bhutan for us. It's hard to imagine what it's like. Give us a little lay of the land here. It is hard to imagine. It is uh, considered to be the last Buddhist kingdom, although it's transitioning to a democracy right now. It is completely undeveloped in much of the country. There's one road that traverses the entire country. Most of the people there live off the land even today. They're subsistence farmers. And so there are spectacular hillsides as you go around the country where you'll see people walking up and down, plowing the fields. You'll see amazing nature, spectacular butterflies, and of course, incredible vistas of mountain ranges all around you. It's unspoiled and spectacular in most of the country. Wow. So Shangri-La does come to mind when you think of Bhutan. Yeah, it does. Now, you wrote in your book, Radio Shangri-La, the essence of Bhutan is being lost in modernization. What is the essence of Bhutan? Well, you know, it is a devoutly Buddhist society, and it was protected from the outside world for many, many years. So it didn't have that outside influence. You didn't have globalization encroaching on it with all of its uh, positive and mostly negative effects. No, none of that homogenization of culture. I've walked through remote parts of Bhutan with people who are far younger than me who still believe in the the worship of the spirits. It's uh, really like a moment frozen in time in much of Bhutan because it doesn't have the menacing forces of the outside world, electricity, roads, all the things. If you imagine, if you extract those things from our world, what it leaves you with and uh, in a place that's that remote, it's quite extraordinary. So who's driving this modernization and why? Well, I think the fourth king of Bhutan in the 70s recognized that he couldn't keep it capped forever. He also didn't want it to go too quickly. And he also recognized that he needed people from the country to go out and study in other countries to come back with their knowledge and keep society advancing. As he let people out, he also let people in for the first time, tourists. And of course, that combination means that you have to sort of roll with it and advance and change. Mm -hmm. And he's done that. The whole idea was to do it slowly, measured, deliberately, and to preserve the cultural heritage. Of course, it's very yeah. difficult so to do. So kind of guide the modernization rather than let it just happen to you. Exactly. Exactly. I understand it's a little bit restrictive for tourists. You have to have a visa. You have to spend so much per day. Uh, what is the sort of the hoops and the red tape tourists have to go to to experience Bhutan? Yeah, the idea was not to let just anybody in because I think the king at the time saw what was happening in Nepal and India, places where people were just allowed to, if you could get there, you could get there and you could stay as long as your money lasted. Bhutan, it's now up to $250 a day minimum that you have to spend to go there. And you can't just book a ticket. It's not like getting on a plane and going to Thailand and going wild. You have to go through a licensed tour guide. Uh, it costs more money if you go with fewer people. If you don't take a tour, even with a tour, it's still very expensive. And it's um, all designed to keep people coming in who really want to help preserve the culture not just do that sort of backpack thing. So you're going into a country where in one week you would spend more than what the average person in that country earns in an entire year. At yes, $250 yes. per day. Are you forced to live just lavishly at that 200 Because that's a heck of a lot of money for Bhutan. Or is that just a tax and you're living uh, rather simply in spite of how much you're spending per day? Yeah, more the latter. Uh, mm -hmm. A lot of people are disappointed that for that money in that part of the world, they're not necessarily living lavishly. It would cost you 
at least twice that to live, you know, more resort style. And then, of right. course, there are many people who go who want the more Ah, so pure you can spend experience. more even if you want to. Oh, yeah, you can spend <laughs> $1,000 a day if you want. All right. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Lisa Napoli about Bhutan, the Shangri-La in the Himalayas. Lisa's book is called Radio Shangri-La. She's written a story about her gig there over five years on six different trips as uh, a volunteer helping Bhutan put together a modern radio station. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Debbie's on the line in Seattle. Debbie, thanks for your call. Hi. Um, I was privileged to go to Bhutan in September and October of last year for 21 days. And I went from west to east. I mean, I, I went the breadth of the country. Totally enjoyed it. I love the people. I love the king. But the one thing I thought was a little idiosyncratic was the infrastructure for the tours. Are, the the yeah. roads are a mess, and it takes mm-hmm. so long to get between point A to point B. I think if they're commanding premium dollars from their tours, that do they have a plan in place to improve their roads? Well, they they have started a series of small airports around the country, which, of course, is both wonderful if you're a tourist and troubling if you're a preservationist, because this is a country where many of the people have never even seen a plane, even overhead, because there was no there was one flight a day, only recently one flight a day coming into the, the country. Uh, and that's a relatively modern development. So these little airports will help make it easier for tourists. Of course, there's a lot of criticism toward that because it doesn't necessarily help the locals. But to your point about the road, that road is terrifying, especially the further east you get. I was praying to every god I could conjure up much of the way. It's otherworldly and terrifying and all sorts of other adjectives. I mean, spectacular, too. And I think that Bhutan recognizes that. A couple of years ago, the royal government hired the McKinsey people out of India to come in and sort of MBA up their their tourism scheme. And they recognized that to keep attracting people and to attract more people, that they were going to have to bolster the infrastructure. It's my understanding that the infrastructure today is still much better than it was even 10 years ago because they, they are continuously working to improve it, both from the hotel standpoint, the food standpoint, the service standpoint. But there are a lot of people who are perfectly happy to go and spend top dollar to go to Bhutan to get this pure, if you will, experience. I don't think you can consider the $250 a day minimum expense to get in there as as sort of a fair purchase. I mean, that would be the wrong approach. They're just taxing people that want to come in to control the mob scenes. Otherwise, everybody would inundate the place. So uh, my hunch is... Uh, they're not thinking, oh, we're not giving people a good value. I just think that they want to don't want to be inundated with tourists. Lisa, you wrote no traffic lights in the city. So they're still, uh, you know, from an age when there wasn't even a concept of controlling traffic very much, it seems like. Yeah, and yet there's so many cars in the capital city now that they've just declared huh. Tuesday's pedestrian day because wow. everybody, the minute people get their hands on a loan, and loans have only been available for a very short while, Uh, More and more people are buying cars, and so there's gridlock in the capital city. So it's moving quickly. The changes are happening quickly there, and they're going to have to deal with the traffic problem in ways other than banning cars on Tuesdays because there are all those tourists who got to get in and out of the city too. Hey, Debbie, apart from the disappointing roads, what was your take on the food in in Bhutan? (laughs) It was pretty abysmal. At first, I I liked the novelty of it, but... Every place you go, every tourist is directed to the same tourist stop. So whether you're one person traveling with a guide or if you're a busful, you always go to the same restaurants, it seems like. And it's always the same fare. It's always the red rice and the crow's beak and the spinach and a few variations on a theme, but that's pretty much it, essentially. And even at breakfast time, you get red rice and spinach, and you might get eggs here and there and toast. But the quality of the food and the restaurants and the hotel was not that good, but I had a couple of opportunities to eat in private homes. Pretty much ate the same thing, but the quality was so much better. And it was yeah. better prepared. Right. Yeah. All right. Debbie, thanks so much for your call. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye now. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Lisa Napoli, and Lisa's book is Radio Shangri-La, What I Discovered on My Accidental Journey to the Happiest Kingdom on Earth. 
and that would be Bhutan. Lisa, when we think about Bhutan, you wrote that it's like visiting there is like taking a ride back in time. What did you mean by that? Well, there are many places, as Debbie points out, that uh, where people are not used to seeing outsiders. And when they do, they have a very proscribed image of what you're going to want or what you're going to be looking for. Uh, there are many villages, I've walked too many of them, where, which are miles and miles from a road and where there's no electricity. Or if there is electricity, it's very, very spare. To walk into a village that is remote and to be greeted by school children singing while they're wearing the national dress it's a pretty amazing mm. and, and inspiring oh. sight. Uh, I was standing in a field where butterflies were fluttering all around me because the environment is so pristine outside of the capital city that it, it's just one giant national park, if you will. It's just spectacular. The spirituality of the country must just be quite amazing. And when you consider the, how materialism is really the religion of the modern world, and then you mm. go to a poverty-stricken country like Bhutan, which is, uh, by some measures, one of the happiest, most content places on earth, and you think they make, you know, $1,400 a year or something like this. It's kind of thought-provoking, I would think, as a visitor from a very wealthy country. Yeah, especially one where people are, you know, we're sort of taught in this country to keep religion under wraps. And there, that, that couldn't be further from the case you walk through the streets and you hear the horns of the monks and the, the voices of the monks as they chant and the smell of incense permeates almost everywhere you go, even before you hit the monastery. Women walk through the streets with prayer wheels. The middle of town in Timpu has a beautiful chorten, a stupa, a religious structure that people walk around to accumulate merit. There's nothing private about the religion there and it's such a beautiful and mm. colorful religion. It's hard for anybody who goes to Bhutan, if they weren't a believer beforehand, mm -hmm. to not come away wanting at least to, to keep a piece of that Buddhism mm -hmm. with them after they're gone. That's beautiful. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Patrick's on the line in San Francisco. Patrick, thanks for your call. Sure. Hi, Rick. How are you? Good. Got a thought for Lisa. Uh, hi, Lisa. Uh, you've been touching on this a little bit. I just wanted to get a little more perspective uh, from you on it. I've never been to Bhutan, but I often hear it associated with gross national happiness, uh, lack of consumer goods. But I'm wondering, I often hear about the poverty as well. And mm. I'm wondering, in your perspective, is, is Shangri-La more of a, a Western idealization? Is it us being selfish? Do we want to keep our experiences, as you call it, pure while, while the locals stay simple? Mm. Yes. In fact, that's a big criticism, and many of the most educated people in Bhutan hate the Shangri-La thing. They hate the gross national happiness thing, if you will, because they don't see themselves that way. And they're aware of the fact that there are many people in the country who aren't living with a lot. You know, this whole idea that we romanticize a place without electricity or romanticize a place without a road, when in fact a road and electricity are the very things that people wanted when they first announced the democratic elections. You know, it's it's a double-edged sword. We're all in this country, or many of us are, wanting to go back to the purity in the land, living off the land, organically sustained, blah, blah, blah. And of course, in a poor country, the minute you get the chance to sit behind a desk for work mm. and consume prepared food that doesn't take hours to farm and, and produce in the in the very modest kitchen that you've got, well, you know, you go that route too. So that's what I love about Bhutan because it points up so many questions that are so important for all of us to be asking at this time. But nobody in Bhutan romanticizes the GNH thing unless they're trying to sell you a tour to the mm. place. And most people aren't in tourism there. It's important to point out, too, that while it is a poor country, it isn't a poor country the way we think of India, where people are in the streets, where there's visible poverty. People don't have a lot of cash, but by and large, people are living in community. Now, of course, that's changing, too. More and more people are seeing on TV that if they just get themselves to the city, maybe they can get rich. And uh, this rural to urban migration, which happens in China and India and, of course, other places, is becoming a big issue and a big problem in Bhutan because, of course, there isn't a lot of money just to be falling off the trees when you show up in the capital city. And, and the, there's a public service campaign on the part of the government to try to get people to realize, stay in your village, make the best of your village. 
which of course is oversimplifying it too. So Lisa, could this um, gross national happiness be seen from a cynical point of view as some way to just kind of keep the masses down, kind of like happiness would be the opiate of the masses? Or is the happiness real? Well, the GNH thing is really more for us. It, it is rooted in a comment, an offhanded comment that the king made years ago. It was never meant to be a prescription or a formula. It was really just a, a throwaway comment that the king made. He didn't want the country to measure itself purely on okay. money. And it's grown into this mythic proportion. You know, the UN just convened a summit on gross national happiness. And it's great that people in the developed world and the richer parts of the world are saying, hey, it isn't all about money. Well, as as poverty-stricken as they are on material terms, we could be poverty-stricken in community terms, our our terms that they value more. Business Week didn't just pick this out of the blue when they said uh, Bhutan was the happiest society in Asia and the eighth happiest country in the entire world. Does the government actually make moves to bolster happiness, or is that just accidental? No, now that the world's eyes are on this particular concept, there's a website, grossnationalhappiness.com, and the government does work. The government is introducing meditation into the schools, which didn't exist before, because it feels like that's a way to center the children each morning before they start their studies. It's not overtly religious, but it's the idea is to get people back to their breath and not be hyped up by the craziness around them. And there are other ways the government is trying to preserve the environment because they recognize that they have to be a steward of the environment. So this enactment of a Tuesday, which is a pedestrian day in the capital city, and where they're trying to convince people not to drive cars is both not just to keep the flow of traffic down in the capital city, but to get people walking with each other. It's stated Hmm. by the government, we want you to go out and walk with each other and stop by your friend's house like you used to do on your way home from work rather than driving past it so you can get home and watch TV. So the government recognizes that with all this modernization is coming problems, and it's working to address it. It's also working to address this demand from the outside world that G&H be sort of codified so everybody can borrow from it and, mm-hmm. and implement it. It's not that simple. We'll conclude our conversation about Bhutan with Lisa Napoli in just a moment as we learn what changing times mean for that country's young people. Then we'll hear from a friend from Sweden about how her country seeks to create a nation of happy citizens in Scandinavia. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Right now on Travel with Rick Steves, we're visiting with Lisa Napoli, who spent a lot of time in a country that very few outsiders have visited, the Himalayan kingdom of Bhutan. Her book is Radio Shangri-La, what I discovered on my accidental journey to the happiest kingdom on earth. We're learning about what happens when an extremely isolated culture begins to open up to the modern world. And what is really striking is how remote this kingdom is. I mean, Bhutan, what is their their annual average income is $1,500 a year or something like that. And there's uh, well under a million people in the kingdom. And just uh, in the last decade, it's been opening up, or the last generation and opening up to the rest of the world. What was your take on, on the naivety or the savviness of the younger generation in such a, you know, a kind of relatively repressed and isolated state? It was both. It was both naive and both very savvy, as you say, um, They're sandwiched between China and India. And what's so interesting is little bits of those cultures seep into Bhutan. Lots seeps in over television and the movies. People there are extremely sophisticated TV and moviegoers. 
But as I write in my book, I have a visit from a Bhutanese woman who comes to the United States, and I get to see the mm. United States through her vantage point. Mm. It's a big, big part of the back half of the book. I love that section, America 101, and talking about yeah. this Bhutanese friend's first impressions of America. And it's alarming, too, because you hear or you've read that immigrants uh, or would-be immigrants are dazzled by the U.S. and think that we're all fantastically wealthy and you know, drive limousines and hang out at the beach all day, go to the shopping mall. But of course, it's alarming when you meet a young person who thinks that that's true and then comes here and, mm -hmm. and is shocked that we don't live that way, that this is not the place that they imagined it to be. So it really puts a fine point on the Hollywoodification or Hollywoodization of our world as much as, you know, we have this mythic feeling about mm -hmm. what Bhutan is going to be. Is there a homegrown music industry in this tiny little country of 700,000 people? Well, that's a great point. You know, as everybody in the world has had the sort of power of the computer put in their hands, Bhutan has too. And even in just the past five years since I first started going to Bhutan, people have become very sophisticated generators of content as well as passionate consumers of it. More and more kids are going out of the country to study journalism and filmmaking or getting their hands on computers and out of the country, meaning even as close as India, right next door, mm -hmm. getting their hand on computers and making movies and recording bands. And that's really interesting. There's this burgeoning culture there that we know very little about. There are only a couple of movie theaters in the whole country, so there aren't mm -hmm. enough places to screen Bhutanese-made movies or hear Bhutanese music live. And there's lots of it being generated. So I'm hopeful that somewhere along the way, there'll be a repository for it because it's as interesting as Bollywood. It sort of borrows from Bollywood and it's fusion culture at its finest. It's fascinating. And there's some great documentaries that have come out of there, too, that are made by Bhutanese. And I can only imagine that they'll get better and better as time goes on. Lisa, I can't help but try to splice that all into the sort of Buddhist frame of mind and and it must be a very interesting thing when you see the modern world coming in, when you see you there doing your work, when you see tourism, when you see a poverty-stricken nation and a king that wants to manage the modernization. And then they've got this Buddhist notion that everything you need is right there within you. Mm -hmm. How does that all come together? I mean, what is your take on that from a, a first-world observer? Well, you know, people are human, and when they see shiny things... They want them. And when they see what they perceive to be a better way of life, they want it. You know, it's great if you have that centering belief system that everything you everything you need is inside you. But it's also very difficult to combat the menacing forces of the outside world, either in the form of TV or tourists. So I think we have so much that we can learn from a place like Bhutan. And Bhutan is learning a lot from us that we may not want it to know. But what's important is that we're all talking about these ideals and this vision for a way of life that isn't all about consuming things. And that's why I think going to Bhutan is so interesting and important, because you can see a place at a moment in time and maybe help break down the barriers, the misunderstandings and the Hollywood world that they, they see the outside world to be. Boy, everything I need is right here within me. And I want to go to Bhutan more than ever. Lisa Napoli, thank you so much for sharing your experience in this fascinating Shangri-La of the Himalayas. Best wishes. Thank you so much. You can watch videos of Lisa Napoli's Bhutan adventures and find links to most of our guests in the details to this week's radio show at ricksteves.com. A World Away from Bhutan is another relatively small nation with a reputation for being content. Sweden is tidy, tucked away, secular, highly taxed, and okay with it because of their strong social ethic. Swedish tour guide Osa Danielsson is not shy about her pride in her country's accomplishments. And she joins us right now to talk about the Swedish version of the good life. Osa, thank you for being with us. Thank you. It's great to be here. How do Europeans look at Sweden from a stereotype point of view, and how is Sweden that way or not that way? Mm. Well... If you ask an European, European, they would probably say, oh, Swedes are tall, blonde, and uh, quite shy. Really? Probably. Shy? Yes, shy. And everything is uh, orderly and neat. Yeah, it's very orderly and neat. You had yeah. these futuristic suburbs that people would go to see, and people would live just like 
little records in a jukebox. Yes, <laughs> exactly. But shy, so, Sweden's got a, I mean, in the old days, Sweden was the Swedish pornography. I mean, it was the opposite yes. of shy. So it has some contradiction. Exactly. We have that side, too. Where so did that it's a, come from, by the way? Because I don't feel like Sweden deserves that reputation today. Mm. Well, basically, you can say that in the, the 60s, the sexual liberation. Right. Uh, was uh, was very strong in Sweden, as in since Sweden is a very secular country. Right. I just think that there's a very relaxed attitude to mm-hmm. everything that has to do with uh, personal morality and so on. Yes. Not necessarily morality. That's mm-hmm. important. Mm-hmm. Swedes, and that's a very common misunderstanding. If you talk to people in the south of Europe, they would see that people that is. Um, Oh, that is sexually a, yeah. free, in right. so to speak, that they would that would be immoral, but that's not the case. People are extremely immoral. It's actually, according to some uh, statistics, Swedish people are very faithful. It's very common not to be married, but you're still faithful. Now that's a very good distinction. So people mm-hmm. in Southern Europe might be heading up to Sweden, thinking people are loose and uh, mm-hmm. promiscuous, mm-hmm. whereas they have less taboos, but they have that loyalty and that faithfulness. Yes, and honesty is a very, very important. Uh, concept in, in all of Scandinavia, but also in Sweden. So honesty and There's responsibility, a, in, I think. In, yeah, in the countryside, it's not uncommon to find little businesses running on the honor system. People have their potatoes or their berries out, and it's yes. just a, a, there's a jar there, and people take some. There's even some public laws that say you can only catch as many fish as you can use, but it's up to your judgment, and everybody sort exactly. of works together. That's that yeah. Scandinavian social ethic, I think. Yes, to see always the bigger picture, to see that, you yeah. know, not look at yourself, just you've got to live see. together in a community. Exactly. Well, that's that's very typically Scandinavian, and, and I suppose mm-hmm. typically Swedish. Now, statistically, I think Swedes are the least church-going, among the most socialistic, and the most affluent, and also most content. Yes. How do, what do you make of that? It has to do with the fact that we try to see the bigger picture. We live in a society where we actually, we trust each other. So people are happy and they are helping each other. They're paying yes. more taxes. Yes. They don't go to church much. No. But I believe there's a kind of a humanism. It's sort of a religion in disguise. Very much uh, humanism. And as a responsibility and the sense of that you are one in a bigger society, that kind of links together to, you know, the sense of community is not something that is... Uh, uniquely something that has to do with religion. I know, because so we that, have I, was, that. I was just saying there's a lot of Christ-like qualities to Scandinavian social ethic. Yes, yes, And the definitely. irony is Scandinavia is the least church-going and least married part yes, of Europe. Yes, definitely. I even have uh, Muslim friends living in Sweden that say that a lot of Swedes are better Muslims than the Muslims themselves. Yeah. Well, I mean, you yeah. could say that from a Christian exactly. point of view, too, because, exactly. you know, love your neighbor and all of yes. this sort of thing, and, and you find that Swedes are, you know, as far as social safety net and and so on, taking care of their neighbors. Also, you've got, it's an interesting situation in Sweden because it's one of the lowest poverty rates anywhere. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's very um, relatively high taxation Mm -hmm. and a very progressive government when it comes to family values. Talk about parental leave. If Mm. if a family is having a baby, what kind of uh, vacation do they get? Well, you get, all in all, 18 months of paid parental leave uh, that you have to share between the, the, the two parents. So you the, said parental rather than maternal. Yes. We changed that as the first country in the world in 1974. Really? Uh, so Bravo, it, yes. 1974. Yes, long time ago, Swedish men were the first one offered the possibility to actually stay home and take care of their children and getting paid. So 18 months, nine months for the mother, and uh-huh. then nine months for the father. So usually you can actually, le- you know, be a little bit flexible mm-hmm. between them. But, okay. but the, it's, the it's standard, use it or lose it. Uh, yes. If, if you don't take it, you don't get the paid time. No, I mean, exactly. you, ha- you have to take the paid time to get it. Oh, yes, So you definitely. have this concept of latte dads. Yes, you can see, walking around in Stockholm, you can see daddies with the strollers, with the babies, and they're, you know, sitting in the cafes and drinking latte and having a great time with their friends. Now, you know, from my perspective, it's just like, where do you get the money to do this? Now, Norway can do it because they have all the oil from their uh, yes. you know, oil fields in the sea. Yeah. But how can Sweden be so uh, wealthy to provide this way for its people? Mm. We're a, a country of big industries. We have uh, Volvo, uh, we have Saab, the cars, right. we have uh, IKEA, we have IKEA, as you say right. here. 
uh, H&M, Ericsson, Ericsson yeah. mobile phones. Those are big companies in a relatively small country. What, yes. what is your population? Uh, 9.5 million. So less than 10 million. Yes. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Sweden with a Swedish tour guide friend of ours, Osa Danielson. Osa, when we're talking about Swedish culture, how does it compare, in your mind, to Norwegian and Danish? Because we all put, many of us put Scandinavia in the same basket. How are the cultures distinct? Mm. I used to describe the Scandinavian countries as siblings, all part of the same family, but with distinct right. qualities. So Sweden, with its historical, you know, we were one of the big uh, empires in Northern Europe. So we are the big brother or the big sister, definitely, right. to Finland, uh, which was a part of Sweden because for 600 years. Because a big part of Finland years. speaks uh, yeah. Swedish. Yes, well, it's or a minority, but, yeah. but yes, they were part of Sweden, literally, for mm-hmm. uh, 600 years. And then also Norway uh, was in union with Sweden for, for about 100 years. Denmark, however, they have always been the, the kind of the other... So there's a, sip, a, a more strong rivalry between Denmark yes. and Sweden. And Norway was was uh, literally shipped between uh, Denmark, Denmark and, okay, and, so, and so Sweden. That's interesting. So Danes and Swedes dominate. Yes. And in order to really be strong, they would want Norway in their in their camp. Yes. And the Norwegians have been shuttled back and yeah. forth. And it was interesting. You told me the other day you do some tours in uh, South, South America. America. Yes. And you take Norwegians on your Swedish tours, but not Danes because. Norwegians and Swedes can understand the language yes, easier. Yes, much, much better, yes. So you don't have to do two languages. You give it in Swedish, yes. and your Norwegians can understand fine, but a Dane would not. No, exactly. And uh, a Norwegian understands me perfectly because they have always looked towards Sweden when it comes to cultural life. They have watched yeah. Swedish TV. That's so right. they know much more about Swedish culture than we Swedes know about Norwegian culture. Although that is changing. That is changing. The, the interesting thing is now because what happened with Norway... Uh, Norway found oil in okay. the 60s. So Norway is now becoming, is our little brother, who's now <laughs> becoming very, very a little, wealthy. A little bolder. And now what happens is that because of the oil, they have so many job opportunities in Norway. Uh-huh. So young Swedes that cannot find a job in Sweden, they go to Norway to work. So if you go into a restaurant, 95% of the time, or maybe 90 you will be served by a Swede. In Norway? In Norway, yes. I didn't realize that. Yes. Hmm. Uh, Because they also have much higher salaries and everything. Norway's got it pretty good right now, I think. Yes, they do. So it's a new new kind of dimension, new new interesting relationship. When Scandinavians joke about each other, I mean, in the British Isles, the Scots and the Welsh and the English and the Irish are always fun but insulting each other. How do the Swedes, Danes, and Norwegians joke about each other? Well, Swedes and Norwegians joke about each other. We have Norway jokes, and they have Sweden jokes. Tell me a Norway joke. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Uh, why does a Norwegian have a sandpaper when they go out in the desert? I don't know. Well, you need a map. Oh, that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that. But I'm Norwegian. I'm, and you then know what, what would a Norwegian say about a Swede? Tell me well, that. Well, what would a Swede use? You know, it's the same jokes. You just yeah. switch oh, you the flip Norway. It off. Yes, okay, so yes, what would that's a, the what funny would a, thing. Why yeah. would a Swede take sandpaper to the Sahara Desert? So yeah. he has a map. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joking about Scandinavians. Uh, we're talking with uh, Osa Danielson. And Osa, each country has a king, I believe, don't they? In Sweden, yes. Denmark. and N- not in Denmark. A queen. A queen, okay, but a royal family. Yes. Yeah. Yes. What, what's new with the Swedish royal family, and, and, and what power does it have? Um, it has no power at all, politically-wise. No power at all. Our king is the king in the world with the least power, I would say. And probably that's why he's accepted. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it wouldn't work otherwise. So his role is just being the official head of Sweden, the, the promoter, the, the ambassador of Sweden, okay. representing, but he doesn't even vote. But the the royal family in Sweden does take tax dollars away or tax crowns away from the economy. Is it a good investment? I would say it would pay approximately $2 a year per person. For the royal family? Yes, for the royal family. So, is it worth $2 a year? I think so, especially our crown princess. She's great. She is down to earth. She's... um, this is funny. Um, We're just, talking about Crown Princess Victoria. Because there was a wedding a couple years ago, wasn't yes, there? Yes, where she married her beloved personal trainer. Oh. So he's so, now our newest addition to the royal family. He's so, now Prince Daniel. So the, the princess's trainer became yes. the... Now he's married into the royal family. Exactly. And how did that go over with the Swedes? Great. 
that's a, another that's, difference. We are uh, less royalistic yeah. than the Danes and the Norwegians, okay. I would say. So this probably bolstered the standing of the royal family among yeah. the Swedish people to have the trainer marrying exactly. into the royal family. Yes. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been discussing modern Swedish culture with Osa Danielson. Osa, as a tour guide, what's your greatest joy in sharing Sweden with foreign visitors? My greatest joy is showing a different lifestyle, a different way of enjoying uh, nature, enjoying being outdoors, a different way of organizing life, uh, very much equality uh, between men and women in our lives. Well, it sounds like you're a little bit evangelical then about Swedish uh, <laughs> values and a way of embracing life. See, so, without you know, even being religious, <laughs> we are, we're the same. Yeah, so tell me, what is it? Why do you believe Swedish life is worth sharing? Um, what is it about Sweden that you think the world would be a better place if everybody had that? Go ahead, brag. Oh, gosh. Okay, that's very un-Swedish to brag. Okay, but you got permission way. here. You're, you're in America. <laughs> no, but I do think that... Um, we have uh, arranged our society in a way that I think is is really, it gives people a possibility to thrive, to to develop as human beings, to live a good life. And the big government would not, and many Americans would say such a big government would demoralize the individualism of the people. No, we are very individualistic. We're, I mean, one of the key things in Swedish culture is independence. It's true. So... It's actually in order to be more independent, everyone is given the same possibility so everyone can really develop as an individual. That's the kind of key concept. And I know it's it's quite difficult to understand, so that's why you just have to come over and we'll explain it to you and you can see it with your own eyes. <laughs> also, if you could sum up Swedish social ethics in one phrase. In what Swedish. Would it, in Swedish, yeah. Yeah, okay. I Sverige så är vi alla individer, men vi lever tillsammans. And what was that in English? <laughs> in Sweden, we are all individuals, but we live together. And then to say thank you very much, what do you say? Tack så mycket. Tack så mycket. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Catton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac kaplan Wolner at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to our colleagues at NPR in Washington and Marketplace in Los Angeles for their help today. We get website help from Andrew Wakeling and Kate Mulhern-Graham, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. We'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. Tips about traveling in Europe and information about the EU are available at euintheus.org. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. And his country, city and snapshot guides cover what to see, where to eat and where to sleep for every corner of Europe. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.